welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. In this episode, we will examine the intersection of music and sports. Specifically, we will take a look at the music and the musicians who were part of the three-day festival in Africa that was held in conjunction with the 1974 boxing match that has come to be known as the Rumble in the Jungle. Both the fight and the music festival held a lot of symbolism about black power, and it was a movement towards some African Americans leaning into their African heritage. But first, thank you to everyone who has emailed, commented on social media, kicked in some cash. You have truly helped make this a great community. Also, thanks to the new patrons who have come on board. You can be a patron, too, for as little as $1 a month by going to ftr70.com. Click on any episode link and click on any Patreon link in those episodes. If you can't do that, just be sure to give a favorable rating on your podcast app, and that does help other fans of 70s music and culture find the show. To understand the importance of the Rumble in the Jungle and the concert known as Zaire 74, you first need to understand how we got there, with dozens of musicians from both the United States and Africa performing for, on the third night at least, 80,000 people in Kinshasa, and why this fight was so important to the underdog, Muhammad Ali. In 1963, 21-year-old Louisville, Kentucky native Cassius Clay was interviewed for a Time magazine cover story. In it, he said of what he saw in his future. I'm going to drive down Walnut Street in a caddy on Derby Day, and all the people will point and say, there goes Cassius Clay. Pretty girls will be there, and I'll smell the flowers and feel the nice warm night air. Oh, I'm cool then, man, I'm cool. The girls are looking at me, and I'm looking away. He was an Olympic champion, overcoming his fear of flying to get to Rome to participate, by the way. And he had an eye on the heavyweight championship, too. That same year, 1963, Cassius Clay was nominated for a Grammy for Best Comedy Album, I Am the Greatest. Each track is labeled as a round, and they feature one of Ali's, or Clay's, other strengths. It's his gift of gab. Round one is very aptly titled, I Am the Greatest. I am the greatest by Cassius Clay. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. The fistic world was dull and weary. With a champ like Liston, things had to be dreary. Then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans a running with cash. (laughs) This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. Also on this album is Cassius Clay's cover of Stand By Me, made famous by Ben E. King in 1961. He also took aim at heavyweight legend Sonny Liston in round eight of this album. Will the real Sonny Liston please fall down? 
Clay did beat Sonny Liston, who by all accounts is one of the toughest, meanest fighters ever to step in the ring, and he was also managed by the Mafia, so there's that. That happened on February 25th, 1964 in Miami. Six months after that, after much speculation and some might say suspicion, Cassius Clay announced that he was a Muslim and his name was now Muhammad Ali. In May 1965, Ali beat Liston in a rematch in Lewiston, Maine, of all places. Why there? I mean, nothing wrong with Lewiston, Maine, I'm sure, but that seems like an odd place to hold a fight like that. Well, because of his announcement that he was a Muslim, there were very few cities that wanted anything to do with him or the fight. Things did not get any smoother for Ali from there because his writing and spelling test scores for the United States Army were so low He failed his induction test, but an interesting turn of events in November 1965, the United States Army decided it did not care so much if you knew how to spell or write well, as long as you knew which end of the rifle was up. Ollie's draft status was revised. He said, I will not go if drafted. Of course, 1965 is the height of the American troops being sent into Vietnam. Since 1964 and the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the United States greatly escalated the fighting in Vietnam. And Ali said, I'm not going to do that. He tried to get classified as a conscientious objector, but that was a no-go. When his name was called at the Houston Induction Center, he did not step forward. He was eventually charged and convicted of draft evasion. He was stripped of his heavyweight title. He was stripped of his license to box for the next three years, and he was facing five years in prison. He was later on a very popular talk show of that era, The Dick Cavett Show, on May 25th, 1970. He said in part when Dick Cavett asked him about going to jail, he said, White America is spending $30 million a day in Asia. Black and white boys are dying unjustly for nothing, just to free somebody else. So why should I worry about going to a little old jail to free my poor people who've been catching hell here for 400 years? To which I might add, by the way, he received a lot of applause from the studio audience. But I can imagine that not everyone at home was applauding. For those whose first image of Muhammad Ali was the man who, by that time, obviously with Parkinson's disease, if if your first image of him was the man who lit the Olympic torch in Atlanta, Georgia in 1996, it might be hard to imagine how incredibly divisive Ali was. A lot of people simply hated him and watched his fights just hoping he would lose. In September 1970, a federal judge restored Ali's right to fight. California Governor Ronald Reagan said he was not going to allow a, quote, draft dodger to box in his state. So, no go in California. The governor of Georgia didn't want it either, but there was no state athletic commission in Georgia. So, with the approval of Atlanta's mayor... The fight between Ali and Jerry Quarry was on for October 26th. Ali won it on a technical knockout, and the same for the rematch in 1972 in Las Vegas. Ali fought in several fights leading up to the Rumble in the Jungle in 1974, including a match in which he lost to Ken Norton, only the second loss of his career, and Norton also broke his jaw. That was March 31st, 1973. After Ali beat Joe Frazier in January 1974, he had his eye on the heavyweight title. And it is here 
that we see the beginning of the transformation of Muhammad Ali from controversial athlete to national treasure. Because to get to that place, Ali had to be the underdog. America loves its underdogs. And you would have been hard-pressed to find anyone who believed that Muhammad Ali, at the age of 32, could beat the heavyweight champion George Foreman. In fact, there were some folks who thought that Foreman might actually kill him. Archie Moore, himself a boxing legend and a world champion, was working in Ali's corner for this fight. His thoughts before the fight? I was praying, and in great sincerity, that George wouldn't kill Ali. I really felt that was a possibility. George truly doesn't know his own strength. It is also important to keep in mind, too, that in the 1970s, you could watch boxing just as easily as you could watch a football game. It was an era before pay-per-view, and you simply turned on your TV to watch. I have very clear memories of watching Ali fight while I was sprawled out on the shag carpeting in our living room, and it's that kind of exposure that helped create fans in a sport like boxing. In fact, Muhammad Ali is one of the very first athletes that I remember watching. So that is how our story gets to Zaire, which has been known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo since 1997. It was led by President Mobutu, who was the type of so-called president who would hold an election, and you would find out that his was the only name on the ballot. He was a dictator, but the U.S. was all okay with Mobutu because he was also anti-communist, and you know how America is about communism. Mobutu gave his stamp of approval for the fight, which he agreed to help pay for, and the accompanying music festival, which he would not help pay for. And in case you're wondering, Ali and Foreman both got $5 million, $5 million each, to fight in Zaire. The musicians got paid too, half up front, but nowhere near that much. They didn't get to fly into Zaire on Mobutu's personal plane the way Ali did. They crammed onto a plane that was so overloaded with James Brown's gear that the plane barely made it off the ground. But there was a lot of music on that plane ride, and there was a chance to hang around not just with Ali and Foreman, but the celebrities that Ali and Foreman tended to attract. Also, Ruth Pointer of the Pointer Sisters said that for her and for many others, it was, quote, a spiritual quest to connect with our native land and its people. These are her observations about Kinshasa, the host city. Mobutu touted Kinshasa as a modern city, but it was as third world as it got. I didn't see any sidewalks and all of the roads were dirt. The city did have a couple of flea markets, and as soon as we got a load of the shopping opportunities, the Pointer Sisters planned to do our part to help kickstart the gross national product. The sights and sounds of the Congo were unlike anything I had ever experienced. Women clutching their children and balancing baskets of food and water on their heads. Actual monkey paws stuffed with vegetables, a native delicacy. Camouflage suited soldiers in red berets armed to the teeth. Street musicians almost on almost every corner. Men in dashiki shirts, bush jackets, and pinstripe suits. Children playing soccer barefoot. Tribal members wearing spectacular colored clothing. In a bus so jammed with people that the driver used his foot to shove them all inside so he could shut the door. It was so cartoonish that it made us all laugh. Everything was there on display in Zaire, once considered the cradle of civilization. The idea for the festival came from Stuart Levine, a native New Yorker, and the exiled from South Africa jazz musician Hugh Masekela. 
They had met about 10 years prior to that at the Manhattan School of Music, and they started a lifelong friendship. This was a few years, by the way, before Levine produced Up Where We Belong by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes and the 1982 hit by Simply Red, Holding Back the Years. They saw this as an opportunity to bring together African-American and African performers. They phrased it as a return to the beat. Now, this festival was never really supposed to be for the people of Zaire. They lived mostly in poverty while Mobutu lived in the lap of luxury. Tickets ranged from $3 to $24, but that was well out of the price range for the average person living in Zaire. The per capita income was about 100 bucks, according to the New York Times. This festival was for the foreign tourists, many of whom ultimately did not show up because the fight was postponed for over a month when George Foreman cut his eye while sparring. You can postpone a boxing match, but postponing a three-night music festival with dozens of performers, no, you can't do that. The show must go on. So on the third night, rather than having James Brown and others play to a mostly empty stadium like they had been doing, uh, just about everybody was let in for free And I've seen multiple accounts that both Ali and Foreman were kind of urging that behind the scenes to just let everybody in. By the late 1960s, B.B. King's career was grinding to a halt. Younger black music fans liked soul. They did not want to listen to the blues, which they considered to be the music of the past or the music of their parents. Then B.B. King was booked to play the Fillmore West in San Francisco in 1967, And for the first time in his life, he played for a mostly, if not all, white audience. The room was filled to the rafters with hippies. And when Bill Graham asked King if he needed anything, he said, I need a scotch. I'm guessing he got the scotch, but he also got a standing ovation before he even played a note. He had earned it. And it certainly helped that rock stars like Eric Clapton were saying his name and giving him the credit that he deserved for his influence on rock music. Ralph Gleason, who uh, was a music journalist mostly noted for being a jazz critic, wrote the liner notes for B.B. King's album, Completely Well, which came out just as the 60s were ending and the 70s were beginning in December 1969. This is partially what Gleason wrote. He is truly the man who, for all practical purposes, invented the electric guitar. You can't walk into a rock concert, sit in a nightclub, dance at the Fillmore West, or turn on any of the hundreds of stations throughout the country playing rhythm and blues and rock and roll and not hear B.B. King. So it's here that B.B. King's crossover begins. The last track on that album, Completely Well, is the song that would finally break through on AM radio with its now instantly recognizable opening notes from Lucille, his guitar. And it showcased for everyone who was new to B.B. King just what they'd been missing out on. This is what Rolling Stone said about that song. The groove is sleek and controlled, and the strings restrained enough to add drama and tension, as well as a low-end melodic counterpoint. King's guitar work is at its most wide-ranging. He pinches notes with an icy, dismissive precision, then expands lyrically into subtle variations on the vocal melody. He played that song as part of his eight-song set in Zaire 2. Of course, it's The Thrill Is Gone.
B.B. King, live in Zaire in 1974. That alone was worth the price of admission. The Thrill is Gone made it to number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1970. That was King's first pop hit at the age of 45. It won B.B. King a Grammy for Best R&B Male Vocal in 1970. It was named to the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1998, and it wowed the crowd in Zaire, including Muhammad Ali, in 74. Bill Withers got involved in Zaire 74 when he was asked by Gary Stromberg, who was hired to do the PR for the music festival. Withers first met Muhammad Ali in 1967 after Ali had refused induction into the army, and so he said he would do it. He saw it as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hang around not just Ali and Foreman, but writers like Norman Mailer and George Plimpton, and of course, musicians like James Brown. Now, Withers was a pretty hot ticket, too, in 1974. In a 1973 review of Bill Withers Live at Carnegie Hall for the Pittsburgh Courier, Greg Mims wrote, The worlds boldly sketched in Withers' song lyrics are populated by real things, real people, and honest emotions. Quest Love, many years later, described Withers as the closest thing black people have to Bruce Springsteen. His journey to R&B star was not typical. He was from a coal mining town in West Virginia, which was the inspiration for Lean On Me. He joined the Navy as a teenager, and it was there that he got interested in music, but he was working as an airplane mechanic in California in 1971 when he was just shopping around his demos of Ain't No Sunshine. The cover of Just As I Am, the album that has Ain't No Sunshine and Grandma's Hands, is a photo of Bill Withers holding his lunchbox at McDonnell Douglas, where he worked. He was literally on a lunch break, getting teased by his co-workers while he had his photo taken for his album cover. Withers said that after he'd been laid off by McDonnell Douglas, two letters came in the mail. One was asking me to come back to my job, The other was inviting me on the Johnny Carson show. It was that appearance on The Tonight Show in November 1971 that helped him quit working as an airplane mechanic because Ain't No Sunshine made it into the Billboard Top 10. And like B.B. King, this came to him a bit later in life. He was 33 when this happened. 
His second album, Still Bill, came out in 1972. It is a masterclass in soul and has several of his classics. The number one hit, Lean on Me, Who is He and What is He to You, and Use Me. It's interesting to think about how uncomfortable Withers was with performing for other people. Something he said may have just been because he had not grown up doing it or even thinking he wanted to. In his performance of I Hope She'll Be Happier in Zaire, he just loses himself, goes inside of himself. It's just him and his guitar, and we get to watch. This one is from his first album. There's nothing sophisticated about this performance. Withers is making himself vulnerable to us and is really just letting us get a glimpse into some of his private thoughts. This is Hope She'll Be Happier. Maybe the lateness of the hour makes me seem blue. the Grammy winner, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Bill Withers, and he pretty much just left the music industry after 1985. His last hit was Just the Two of Us with Grover Washington Jr. in 1981. Now, he gave every indication in the 70s that he was not going to be a musician forever, and he wasn't. He said in 1978, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point in my life, I all of a sudden looked into something else. It could be anything. I'd hate to be a 50-year-old man out somewhere at three in the morning trying to entertain a bunch of half-drunk people. I'll be 40 next year, and now I think about things like that. It's important to me that my life grow intellectually someplace other than going around trying to be a middle-aged rock and roller. And so the signs were there that he was not going to be in this for life. While my focus on the uh, Festival of Zaire 74 has been on the American artists, I really don't want to lose sight of the fact that there were many great African musicians there too. There is an album out of just the African musicians' music, but it did not come out until 40 years after the festival, which is a shame. The fact that the festival was not a financial success meant that the exposure for the African musicians that was hoped for just really did not materialize. So as I scanned the list of the names of the performers, a name jumped off the list at me. Manu Dubango, a saxophone player from the Cameroon, has a very important role in disco history. In episode one of this very podcast, Disco Doesn't Suck, 
I talked about David Mancuso and how his house parties at the Loft were the precursor to New York's disco clubs. In 1972, Mancuso came across the 45 for Sol Macosa, and he started playing it at his parties. Frankie Crocker, a legendary DJ for WBLS Radio in New York, put that song in heavy radio rotation and other club DJs began to play it. Vincelletti wrote the very first mainstream press article about disco that same year when he was writing for Rolling Stone. In that article, he said that Sol Makosa was the fir- was the perfect example of the disco sound that was starting to take the clubs by storm. This might be the very first song that showed the influence that DJs, not radio, were going to have over making disco hits. It is also clear evidence of the African roots in disco. Here's a bit of Soul Makosa. disco in there, right? And if you thought, hey, that beginning sounds familiar, I'm going to tell you why in just a second. So Vincelletti wrote of the album Soul Macosa in 1973, quote, far from being a package of waste filler cushioning the title single, it is one of the best to emerge from the new discotheque scene. Recorded in Paris, Manu Dubango and his group of expatriates from formerly French West Africa put together a heady Afro-jazz blend using horns and electric guitars, but in an utterly African way, perfect for a subtropical evening in the jungle of the cities. Sol Makosa, the single, snuck into the Billboard Top 40 in 1973. There were actually multiple versions on the charts because of all the bootlegs, so it could be kind of hard to keep up with which version was what. We lost both Bill Withers and Manu Dubango in 2020. Dubango died of COVID-19. If you watch the Soul Power documentary on this festival, you can see Dubango doing a bit of call and response with some of the kids on the street. Even though Zaire 74 was not a big financial success, Dubango was very instrumental in showcasing African music to the world. He toured and recorded throughout his life. And if you're thinking, hey, the beginning of that song, where have I heard that before? Well, I'll tell you where you heard it before. Michael Jackson borrowed that for Wanna Be Starting Something in 1982. So yes, if you, uh, like me, listened to the Thriller album about 11 billion times in 1982 and 83, yeah, that's where you heard that. Sister Sledge made the trip to Zaire five years before they became a sensation in Major League Baseball with the Pittsburgh Pirates anthem, We Are Family. Hey, by the way, check out 
episode 36 of this very podcast, the 70s and uh, 70s music and sports episode for more on that. Joni, Kathy, and Debbie Sledge began performing professionally in 1971 and still had not had any real hits by 1974. So this opportunity represented a bit of on-the-job training for these sisters. I have to think that some of the reason that they had not really broken through by 1974 is not having the right people around them professionally. Certainly, fortune smiled on them when Atlantic told Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards that they could produce any act on Atlantic's roster in 1979, and they chose Sister Sledge. This is what Kathy Sledge said about the opportunity to play in Zaire. I have to tell you, that the rumble in the jungle had to be one of the most exciting points in my life. Um, we were, I think I was around 14 years old, and it was one of the first times I ever flew, especially, I think, the first time I ever flew uh, overseas. Um, or maybe, but to Africa, of course, but um, one of the longest flights, because we had been in Europe, but never that far. And to travel, first of all, on a charter plane with all those legendary talents where, I mean, that was in itself just um, euphoric. Bill Withers, right there, and my sister, Deborah, is an amazing artist. And I have a photograph somewhere. The flight, she, she actually did a portrait of Bill Withers while he was sleeping. Amazing. Debbie is an amazing artist. And um, James Brown, I remember, was up front with Johnny Pacheco. And we had all these third-row artists as well. Pointer Sisters, Lloyd Price. It was so to be there with such legendary artists and again to just be this open mind of learning from all of them on and off stage. Uh, and then once I stepped off the plane, I felt a sense of home. You know, wow, this is a place actually where I feel like I belong. And to be able to experience that at such a young age. She was 15 years old when she was in Zaire. Part of Sister Sledge's set was their cover of the Gladys Knight and the Pips hit from 74, On and On, and 15-year-old Kathy Sledge was on the lead vocals. Sledge taking the lead on On and On, written by Curtis Mayfield 
and sung by Gladys Knight and the Pips for the 1974 movie Claudine. But that was Sister Sledge live in Zaire. Not the first time, by the way, that Sister Sledge borrowed from Gladys Knight. Ruth Pointer said that one of the things that kept her and her sisters from getting too bored with their accommodations in Zaire, which she described as, quote, out in the sticks, is that the spinners were staying nearby. Some of the best film footage of the spinners in the documentary Soul Power is of Philippe Wynne sparring with Ali, but I say some of the best because the best is them coming out in their glittery white jackets with their navy blue shirts and the navy blue pants with the zaggedy white lightning bolt things and then one-of-a-kind love affair is playing and they just start in with their smooth moves. I mean, that is worth the $3. This is yet another act in Zaire that saw real success come to them in the 70s a little bit later in their lives. The Spinners were formed as a doo-wop group in the 1950s and were signed by Motown, but did not have a hit until 1970 with It's a Shame, which Stevie Wonder wrote specifically for a new singer that the group brought in, G.C. Cameron. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking, how many songs has Stevie Wonder written that were amazing, and then he just gave them to other people? Uh, Rufus and Chaka Khan, Tell Me Something Good, he wrote that, and uh, Tears of a Clown for Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, he wrote that. I'm sure there are many others. That's probably a podcast episode waiting to happen, too. At any rate, uh, the Spinners were formed as a doo-wop group in the 50s, and they were thinking, you know, uh, we're not getting too far here with our record label, Motown. So they left for Atlantic Records because they were thinking, look, if Atlantic Records is good enough for Aretha Franklin, it's good enough for us. So G.C. Cameron stayed with Motown when joined the Spinners and the Spinners working with producer Tom Bell, all of that meant that the Spinners became the perfect vehicle for that Philly sound. That the gorgeous falsetto, the lush orchestration, the smoothly polished sound, it's all evident here in one-of-a-kind love affair. Spinners live in Zaire. It's funny how things can turn around. I mean, just when it seemed like the Spinners were not even going to be a group anymore, things turn around for them with uh, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love, making it to number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in March 1973. 
And then One of a Kind Love Affair made it to number one in the summer of 73. To go from almost disbanding to performing at the Rumble in the Jungle, that's that's quite a turnaround. Now, if anybody was going to match Muhammad Ali's persona in Zaire, it was the godfather of soul himself, James Brown. Stuart Levine said that convincing Brown to take part in the festival was key because he was like a king in Africa. He was more than a singer by that point. He was an activist, and he was a living symbol of black pride. Check out this introduction as James Brown takes the stage in Zaire, and then his opening song, perhaps the pinnacle of his career, is the payback which is the embodiment of early 70s soul. Right about here, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to get yourself and your soul together. This man will make your liver quiver. This man will make your bladder splatter. This man will freeze your knees, if you will. Let's all welcome the world's godfather of soul, soul brother number one, James Brown! James Brown! James Brown! James Brown was 41 years old, and he's out there in this very 70s deep-cut blue jumpsuit with GFOS, Godfather of Soul, in shiny sequins on the front. He's out there doing the splits and acting like he was 20. But that introduction, that's why James Brown needed to be at Zaire 74. The Payback is the title track to his 37th studio album of the same name. In 1975, after another visit to Africa, in which he was quite literally treated like a combination uh, of Elvis and some other sort of king, Brown said this about performing in Africa. This is not just an ordinary engagement. Every century has a messiah. People look on me as a messiah in Africa because they see I can bring all black people together. The Africans may have the money to save the black people. Everything I do is for black people. I don't need the money. I've grown into a world figure. International sounds too small. From now on, I'm going to be involved with the world. 
When I stopped the riots in Washington, one of the national magazines called me the most powerful black man in America. They've also said I'm the most powerful black man in the world. So, when the fight finally took place, 4 a.m. Zaire time, to accommodate television in the United States, Muhammad Ali knocked out George Foreman in the eighth round and reclaimed the heavyweight championship of the world. He would lose it again and reclaim it a third time, both in fights to Leon Spinks, long after he probably should have retired to preserve his health. But in 1974, the underdog had achieved that comeback. If James Brown was the most powerful black man in the world, it is highly possible that Muhammad Ali was just the most famous black man in the world, period. It's our human tendency to want to write odes and songs and encomiums of praise to our heroes, and Ali is no exception. This has been going on since uh, the 1960s with Muhammad Ali, with songs like The Ballad of Cassius Clay in 1964 and The Ali Shuffle in 1967. There was a reggae song in 1973 simply called Cassius Clay. In 1974, Johnny Wakelin and a group of musicians that he called the Kinshasa Band recorded and released a reggae-ish song called Black Superman Muhammad Ali. Mitchell Morris wrote a little bit about that song in a book called The Persistence of Sentiment. And he said that Ali was already helping the black Muslims by reinforcing their ideals about masculinity. No doubt Ali was not shy about singing the praises of his own body, and he himself proclaimed himself to be the greatest. In this song, Johnny Wakelin is just echoing that by using Ali's own words. He presents him as a superman because that is what Ali does. Morris said that for a one-hit wonder, the song achieved a lot of important work. This here's the story of Cassius Clay, who changed his name to Muhammad Ali. He knows how to talk, and he knows how to fight, and all the contenders were beat out of sight. Sing, Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. He floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. Muhammad, the black Superman, who calls to the other guy, I'm Ali. Catch me if you can. Here's a story of Cassius Clay Who changed his name to Muhammad Ali He knows how to talk and he knows how to fight And all the contenders were beat out of sight Sing Muhammad, Muhammad Ali He floats like a butterfly Muhammad Ali, Black Superman, that was on the charts for six months, and it made it all the way to number one on the Billboard Pop Charts in 1975. It's it's a fine song, but you know that some of that popularity is because of Ali himself. The song, by the way, began life as a tribute to a Hungarian boxer, and Wakeland just reworked it, but that doesn't diminish its importance. He also wrote one called Zaire 74, but that one's just kind of relegated to the back of history's file cabinets. He wrote both of those songs for a pretty simple reason, though. Like many, he was just a fan. Ultimately, 
Zaire 74 was not a success, at least not financially. Etta James reportedly refused to perform, and then there were problems with ticket sales, like I mentioned earlier. Legal troubles kept the film under wraps for years until some of it resurfaced in When We Were Kings in 1996. Soul Power, which documented the music festival, that wasn't released until 2008, and Stuart Levine kind of suggested that maybe they were foolish to think that they could pull it off. But maybe we can look back on it a little differently now. If we can set aside money as the sole measure of success, we can appreciate this merging of sport and music. While both are means of expression, and maybe even if you're lucky, a pathway to a successful career, they are both ultimately entertainment. Games and music might evoke a lot of feelings. They might make you feel joyful, and they might break your heart. But this festival was a product of its time, and it was right on time. In an era when African Americans were examining what it meant to be black, as well as examining their ancestral roots, this festival was an opportunity to celebrate both. If we view success in terms of legacy, rather than dollars, then Zaire 74 was every bit a success. That is all for this episode of For the Record the 70s. This episode was narrated and produced by yours truly. All of my source material is on ftr70.com. If you like the show, hey, be sure to tell someone about it. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.